Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul's epistle to the Romans is arguably the greatest book in the Bible. Now, are we even allowed to say that? We probably should say that all of Scripture is equally valuable and provides a unique and important contribution to the entire constellation of Scripture. But where else do you find such thorough, extended arguments explaining God's plans throughout redemptive history? plans that outline man's woeful lack of righteousness, God's full supply of it, and His gracious plan to slay His own Son in order that we might acquire it. Righteousness. We lack it. God has it. Christ supplies it. And we must embrace it by faith. Where else In all of Scripture, do you find this level of hope in such a concentrated form? Well, let's hear for a moment how men throughout the ages have pondered the value of this epistle. The German reformer Martin Luther wrote, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament, truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, how are we doing with that, (laughs) by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. The Genevan reformer, John Calvin, wrote, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. The British reformer, William Tyndale, the father of English Bible translators, he described Romans in the prologue to his commentary on the book as, the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and the most pure euangelion, that is to say, good tidings, glad tidings, and also a light and a way in unto the whole of Scripture. The more it is studied, the sweeter it is, and the more it is chewed, the more pleasant it becomes. 20th century British theologian John Stott declared, Romans is a kind of a Christian manifesto, a manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. It is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. Its message is not that man was born free and everywhere he is in chains, as Swiss philosopher Rousseau advocated. It is rather that human beings are born in slavery and sin, but that Jesus Christ came to set them free. For here is unfolded the good news of freedom, freedom from the holy wrath of God upon all ungodliness, from alienation into reconciliation, freedom from the condemnation of God's law, and freedom to give ourselves to the loving service of God and others. So its theological significance aside... The book of Romans is undoubtedly a book that's close to your heart this morning. I mean, how many of us have had our eyes opened by God's Spirit to see the glories of the gospel and salvation in the pages of this book? How many of us have found hope during dark days 
in these words. And how many of us have been moved to repentance and obedience as a result of the teachings of Paul to the Romans. Now, it's not my intent this morning to preach this entire book because the longest sermon ever recorded was already preached last weekend. That's true. By Pastor Zach Zender in Orlando, Florida, who preached a 53-hour sermon setting the Guinness Book of World Record as the longest continuous speech ever given. He had a treadmill up there and everything to help him stay awake. There's easily enough material here in Romans to cover that amount of time. But have no fear. That's not our goal this morning. My intent is for us to gaze upon the mercies of God in the gospel and to allow the clear vision of Christ to result in a life transformed into joyful worship before God. So again, our goal is that we might gaze upon the mercies of God in the gospel and to allow that clear vision of Christ to result in a life transformed into joyful worship before God. Now before we go any further, would you pause with me and ask the Lord that He would do the work of opening our hearts before Him this morning. Let's pray. Our God, it is of You and through You and to You that all glory should be ascribed. Thank you for these precious truths that lie right before us. I pray for every heart here that we would lie beneath the Scriptures, not standing above it, trying to be experts, believing what we want it to say, but Lord, we would stand beneath it as needy beggars, desiring to be fed and nourished from your Word. Would you do that in and for us this morning? It's for Christ we pray this. Amen. Well, as we look at the 16 chapters that compose the book of Romans, from a bird's eye perspective, we can divide the book into two distinct sections. First, chapters 1 through 11, and chapters 12 through 16. And in these first 11 chapters... Paul explains God's righteous wrath against all sinners, regardless of Jewish or Gentile heritage, God's saving righteousness and the death of Jesus and how this righteousness is embraced by faith alone. We see the triumph of grace over the power of the law and sin. We see the Christian's life in the Spirit in chapter 8 and his assurance of true hope. We see in chapters 9 through 11 God's saving purposes for Israel. Israel's rejection, and God's vindication of His decrees. The section concludes with a doxology, the very song that we just sang. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To whom be glory. Just for now? No. Forever and ever. Amen. Paul exults at the end of chapter 11 with praise for God's unparalleled wisdom in bringing great honor to Himself through the gospel. 
in this act of supplying righteousness to the least likely of people. And now, Paul turns a corner. It's as if it's a linchpin moment in the book where we're turning a corner. And Paul knows that it's vital to flesh out the general principles about the transforming power of the gospel. He now begins to urge Christians to manifest the power of the gospel in the specifics of their day-to-day lives. And in Romans 12, 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, Paul shifts his focus from instruction to exhortation, from indicative, from those realities that we must know and we must believe, to now the imperatives, those realities that we must live out live out as obedient children. However, this turn toward the giving of commands is not an optional second step after we embrace what's really important in the first 11 chapters. No, it's rooted in our initial response to the gospel itself. So in other words, we shouldn't view chapters 1 through 11 as just the raw data that I need to pack my head full of And since chapters 12 through 16, it's not really the gospel, you know, all we really need is is chapters 1 through 11. We're never supposed to conclude that, as if people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndale and the the really spiritual giants are the ones who kind of read the rest of the book, and they're the ones who took it seriously. So chapters 12 through, through 16, these are just the optional, like if you really want to be a superstar Christian, you can read that part. No. Paul has no category for that. Ever since chapter 1, he stated that his whole apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. He inseparably links these things. Our living out of the gospel is part and parcel to what it means to be a redeemed child of God. So it makes no difference if you tip your hat in agreement to the essentials of Christian doctrine in chapters 1 through 11 if you do not equally seize hold of the call to obedience in chapters 12 through 15. It is with these thoughts in mind that we read together Paul's turning point in the book. Let's read together Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in these two verses lie three main propositions. In verse 1, we see the call to worship, Paul's urging, his appeal to present the Romans to present their bodies as living sacrifices. In verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, we see a call to resistance, a call to resistance. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then the last part of verse 2, the call to transformation. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So first, the call to worship in verse 1, 
the call to resistance in verse 2a, and the call to transformation at the end of verse 2. Let's first consider the call to worship that is outlined here. We see, first of all, that it is grounded in the mercies of God. Paul's appeal here conveys an earnest request while maintaining still a comforting tone. These are, after all, his brothers, the international family of God. And he points out that we all have this holy obligation to live committed, loving lives before God. But Paul grounds this appeal in the mercies, plural, of God. The mercies of God. I hope that's a phrase that's running through your ears for weeks to come. The mercies of God. For 11 chapters, Paul's been unfolding the mercies of God in the gospel. And it's upon this foundation that Paul offers now this ethical appeal. Because he believes something. He believes that the gospel itself is a sufficient guide for every believer in living a life that honors God. No add-ons necessary. No mix-ins necessary. The gospel itself is a sufficient foundation for righteous, holy living. Before we move on, would you just let this be an anchor for your heart? The mercies of God. The precedent Paul lays here is to ground all of our obedience to the Lord in the manifold mercies of God. I mean, just think, not only of the, the mercies that God has shown in His Word, which we could spend all day looking at and just outlining how He's been gracious to us in both our forebears and to us today, but, but what about the, the day-to-day life? What about the last 10, 20 years? How has He been good to you? How has His mercy fleshed itself out in your life? And yet, why do we struggle to meditate on this? You might struggle, as I do, to meditate on all those things that I lack, all that I don't have. Perhaps you would say, I don't have the career that I believe that I'm capable of. Perhaps you say, I don't have the spouse that I've always dreamed of. I don't have the personality, the athletic ability, the intellectual capacity, the education that I've always wanted. I don't have the perfect family, perfect children that I've always thought I'd have. I don't have the car, the house, the boat, the toys that I've always wanted. And we allow the meditations of our heart to just stream through hour upon hour on all that we lack. And yet the mercies of God ought to be this foundation bedrock for our souls. We need minds that continually rehearse the mercies of God. We need minds that continually rehearse the mercies of God to us in Christ. So after Paul sews together his appeal with various, God's various mercies, he calls upon the Roman believers to now present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now, what does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God? If you've run in Christian circles for a little while, you're probably familiar with this phrase, and you're, 
you're aware of it and you've probably said it before. And you're, but what exactly does it mean? Well, as you might imagine, the imagery Paul is employing here has as its setting the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The word for present here is a sacrificial term derived from Israel's ancient worship. In fact, worship terminology pervades the remainder of verse 1, indicating that Paul is now applying sacrificial language from the Old Testament to these Roman believers. As Christians today, we thankfully no longer offer animal sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Well, because Jesus has fulfilled and brought to a close the Old Testament sacrificial system. However, as Peter tells us, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices before the Lord. Moreover, Hebrews says that we are to offer sacrifices of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The difference here in Romans 12 verse 1 is that there's no specific offering that we bring, such as the fruit of our lips that we offer praise to God. No, here it's our very selves. It's our very bodies. The point is not here that, that just our bodies are called to obey God's commands while secretly we have hearts that are far from God, but He's okay as long as we're going through the motions. Oh, no. No, no, no. This is to encompass all that we are, body, mind, soul, spirit. And because of the greatness of God's mercies, we owe everything to our Creator and our Redeemer. And there are three descriptions that follow this phrase. This kind of sacrifice is to be living. It is to be holy. And it is to be acceptable. Once again, each of these connote a, a worship imagery. And as living sacrifices, we demonstrate that we are those who used to be spiritually dead. But we have been resurrected to walk in newness of life, as Paul writes earlier in Romans 6. And as holy and acceptable sacrifices, we are to bring not any old sacrifice, but one that is holy and pure. He deserves that which is pure and set apart before Him. So verse 1 concludes here with this phrase, which is your spiritual worship? Which is your spiritual worship? This is sort of an interesting and kind of an often disputed phrase and you may have a translation that actually reads it differently. A lot of them render it differently. And the word only appears one other time, this word for spiritual. The word only appears one other time in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, where it is translated spiritual. But the word can also mean reasonable, sensible, pertaining to mind and heart. And based on what Paul's about to unfold in verse 2, concerning the renewal of our minds, the context steers us to prefer a translation, or at least steers me to prefer, the translation by the, the old authorized version, reasonable service, that which pertains to what, what only makes sense. So it's as if Paul's saying, look, in light of the mercies of God, look at what he's been doing. Sit through my theology class for 11 chapters. And, and you, you've got to get it. If you don't get it, you have no idea what's going on. You have no context with which to actually live this out. The mercies of God. And now, doesn't it just make sense? 
Isn't it just rationally the most logical thing to do to now offer your very selves, every bit of you, to that kind of God who supplies you with a righteousness that is not your own while you were drowning in the sea of your sin and he rescued you completely? You didn't swim like most of the way and then he pulled you the rest of the way. He went all the way. It doesn't just make sense to render your life in total service before him. In light of the mind-blowing mercies of God, it is only reasonable to present our entire selves as living sacrifices to God. The last word, worship, conveys a sense of divine priestly service, one who can follow prescribed rules, especially in the performing of religious duties. And as you can see, the Old Testament sacrificial system just pervades this verse. So how do we summarize it? Look, 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 look into the mercies of God. Look at the staggering mercies of God. And now tell me, doesn't it just make sense to offer your entire selves before Him? Now, before Paul ever penned these words to the Romans, our Lord illustrated a very similar point in a parable that He told in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. The story goes like this, you might remember. After the king, after a king, a great king, has compassion on his servant and forgave him a debt of 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents, approximately $6 billion, billion. I, was, I looked that up and read that and I thought, what kind of person gets themselves in that kind of mess? $6 billion of debt. And this servant, after being completely forgiven of all of it, the, the servant immediately goes out to find one of his fellow servants who owes him a measly 100 denarii, approximately $12,000. Still considerable debt, but comparatively, it's nothing. And he does this so he might throw this guy in prison and get what he wants. So he thinks, wow, I've just bumped up to, I'm even and out here, and now I'm going to go take what's mine and get ahead in life. So when the king learns of his servant who has just received forgiveness for this incalculable debt, but he won't show for similar forgiveness towards someone else for a comparatively insignificant debt, he has this servant cast into prison. So similar is the sense we're to take away from Paul's argument here in, in Romans 12. Because we have, we have received forgiveness for this infinite debt from the king of the universe, how can we not live a transformed, holy life in all of our relationships thereafter? So ask yourself this morning, what am I worshiping? What Am I worshiping? The question really isn't, are you worshiping? No, that's a given. To be human is to worship. It is our natural state to exalt something outside of ourselves. At the end of the day, we know we're not the end-all be-all of this universe. We can tell what we worship by what captures our time and our money and our affections. 
And even the quietest of people, if you push the right button, it's pushed in the right context, they can tuck your ear off for days about something they're interested in. The question is, are we offering authentic worship to the one who can infinitely forgive you when you fail him and ultimately satisfy you when you make him the center of your life? This only our sovereign Lord can do. So we have observed Paul's appeal to every believer to gaze upon the mercies of God in the gospel and to allow that clear vision of Christ to result in whole life worship. But, but how? Right? I mean, that's the nat- natural question. How? How do I do this? By what means is whole life worship accomplished in the Christian's life? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in both a negative and a positive command. So first, let's look at the negative, this call to resistance. At the beginning of verse 2, Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world. Two words capture our immediate attention here, conform and world. What is meant by these things? What does it mean to not be conformed? Well, the sense of the word communicates this idea of being morally and behaviorally molded, shaped, sculpted by someone or something. In this case, the world. But once again, we find this Greek word only used one other time in the New Testament for trying to get a sense of how it's used. And once again, it's actually in 1 Peter, where Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So just as Paul makes a sweeping appeal in verse 1 for Christians to worship God in every facet of life, he's equally concerned that Christians guard themselves in an all-encompassing sort of way against being molded and shaped and sculpted by the values and the behavior present in the world. But what is meant by the world? It's really important that we know that. Well, here the world refers to the world system. That anti-God worldview, it's as if we, it's that, that lens that is put on, those, those glasses that are put on, and all the world is viewed simply void of God. I look at all of life and I just leave God out. It's, it's also those practices and those standards that characterize all who have no respect reverence, and love for God's authority over their lives. So, what might conformity to the world look like in one's everyday life? Well, our minds probably immediately go to the most extreme illustrations, right? Well, the world murders people. Well, the world robs banks. Well, the world commits blatant immorality and the like. But I'd imagine conformity to the world is that we're most guilty of here is something a little more tricky. And it might look something like this. Tim wakes up in the morning. My apologies to any Tims here this morning. You're being used as an example. It's not connected to you at all. Tim wakes up in the morning with no thought at all that it was God who gave him rest and sustained him while he slept. He forgets Psalm 3, which says that very phrase, that it was God who sustained him. Tim eats his breakfast with no thought that God is the one who always 
provides his every need. He forgets Jesus' words in Matthew 6 that if, if he's able to care for the birds of the air, he's very much able to care for our physical needs. Tim drives to work frustrated at everyone who dares to slow him down. Then Tim works in such a way at his job where he cuts corners, only seeking his own personal advancement over the good of the company. And he forgets Paul's words in Colossians 3 that we're to work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And after the workday, Tim exercises so he might have a body that impresses people and conforms to the advertisements seen everywhere in our culture not to rightly steward the health that God has given him. He forgets Paul's words in 1 Timothy 4.8, that bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way because it's valuable both in this life and the next. Tim works only because it provides the money necessary to spend on all the expensive accessories he needs for all his hobbies that he spends most evenings researching online hour upon hour upon hour. And he forgets that even his leisure is a gift from God and ought to still be brought under the Lordship of Christ. Tim excuses his regular mental digression into immoral thoughts with the thought, I'm not actually hurting anyone. And he continually exchanges infinite satisfaction at God's right hand, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 1611, pleasures forevermore for a cesspool of unholy thoughts. And Tim wakes up the next day and repeats the same cycle with little variation. And over time, Tim's life bears no recognizable difference from the same values that drive all of his non-Christian co-workers and friends. He functionally lives his life as if there's no God. This is conformity to the world. This is being molded and shaped by something, and it's not God. It's very likely that our conformity to the world is more subtle than we might want to admit, but the call to present our entire lives in worship to God must envelop both the significant events of life and the insignificant, both the mundane and those mountaintop moments of life. So we have observed that Paul's, Paul's appeal to every believer to gaze upon the mercies of God in the gospel to follow that clear vision to, and to allow that clear vision of Christ to result in whole life worship, first through the call to resist conformity to the world and now positively to transformation that is made possible through the renewal of our minds. So the call to transformation. Verse 2 reads here, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are called to a continual attitude of stiff-arming the world's desire to mold us and sculpt us into its image. So we might allow ourselves, we might place ourselves in the path of transformation. We might do whatever it takes, in a sense, if, if the transforming power of God is like a locomotive 
we do anything to get in the way of it because we know that in that is our only hope. I know it's a little strange to think about, but we must do that. We must place ourselves in the path of this transformation. We must be conformed. As one author notes, we human beings seem to be imitative by nature. We seem to, we need a model to copy. And ultimately, there are only two. There is this world, which is passing away, and there is God's will, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those two value systems, the world and God's will, are incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. Our transformation in this life does not happen all at once. We must remember that. There are certain schools of thought that teach that. It does not happen as a result of a series of crisis points in your life where you muster up enough emotional resolve to never commit a particular sin again. How many of us have been there? Nor should our transformation lead to a fatalistic mindset that we'll never be any different than we are right now, thinking that transformation is only something when we pass into the life to come. Well, I, I ain't changing, can't teach an old dog new tricks. What's here is here, live with it. That sort of mindset. Paul chooses to use the same verb that both Matthew and Mark use to describe the transfiguration of Jesus, this idea of transformation. Even more related is Paul's use of the word in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul tells the believers at Corinth, Gaze upon the glory of the Lord, and in so doing, you will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And similarly, Paul tells the Roman believers to gaze upon the mercies of God, and in so doing, they will be transformed in their thinking so they might test and approve God's will. Paul seems inextricably linked to the notion that we will become like what we behold. All of us, we will become like what we behold, regardless of your age. What are you beholding? What are the meditations of your heart? What do you hold before your mind's eye as that which is most treasured and valued in your life? You will become like what you behold. Is it going to be one degree of glory to another? Will it be renewed minds? that love the will of God. Because we are moldable, impressionable people, even the most free-spirited among us, we long for a template against which we can pattern our lives. And that template must always be the mercies of God in Christ. We see here this idea of renewing the mind. Our transformation is accomplished how? Well, by means of this renewing of our minds so we might test and approve the will of God. The mind is a person's reason and his moral consciousness. So not simply just a, a 
information download, a, a collector of facts. But this is our reason and a moral consciousness. Faith in the gospel begins this lifelong process of reprogramming our minds so we might know and obey God's will. So we start to look at everything differently. The way that we used to conduct ourselves in certain ways, the, the very old things that we used to use now become instruments of righteousness, not of unrighteousness, as do our very selves. So if renewal of the mind is begun for every believer at salvation, how do we cultivate a renewed mind? How do we together, as Eden Baptist Church, cultivate a renewed mind? Well, I believe a renewed mind comes both individually and collectively together as we behold our God. Individually, our souls need routine, regular times of feasting upon the word of truth. Just like a growing body needs this consistent intake of calories in order to mature, spiritual growth happens as we consume the Word consistently and humbly. But this is not simply Paul's vision for a renewed mind. Moses wrote to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, what we just read, "'You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand.'" And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in the house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land. Worship in all of life is not a Romans 12 new thing. It has always been God's heart for His people. That they would not be just bodies going through the motions. They, they would have a new heart. It has always been God's design that His people saturate themselves with the Word so they might renew their minds and obey His will. Now, we see that individually as our responsibility to renew our minds, but what about collectively, corporately, together? Well, God has not saved us to be independent, disconnected, spiritual nomads. Did you know that? We sort of swim upstream against our culture in that way. We think church is just, uh, we walk in and we, we take it as any other business that we kind of, what do I like about this church? Oh, they don't got everything going for me. I like this one. And we're very privatized and the consumer's always right, kind of, which has its place, but, but we, we import way too much. We, we were never made to be lone rangers, be these spiritual nomads who lack any sense of belonging. In God's wisdom, He sets up local outposts called churches. For his kingdom. And like embassies in a foreign country, we reunite with fellow countrymen who likewise identify in loyalty to our king. And when we gather in corporate worship, we renew our minds as we sing doctrinally rich songs and hymns that declare our trust in God's steadfast love for us. We renew our minds as we actively listen to the preached word and carefully evaluate how we might repent of sin and live in joyful obedience to what is taught. We renew our minds as we humbly pray for our nation's leaders, fellow churches, and those among us afflicted by trials, unreached people groups, and missionaries, and on and on, so we might rightly consider how to love one another as Christ has loved us. 
We renew our minds as we gather early on Sundays for Bible education and instruction in specialized areas of the Scriptures so we might better appreciate the individual doctrines of Scripture and how they find their place in the storyline of the Bible. In all these ways and in countless more, the church of Jesus Christ is an institution given by God to administer grace to one another so God's children might bring Him glory through minds renewed in the Scriptures. The renewal of our minds, though, is not an end in and of itself. It has a goal. The transformation of thinking that is continually taking place in a believer's life finalizes in testing and discerning the will of God. The idea here is testing of testing and discerning means to approve, to consider and approve God's will. So by renewing our minds, we're able to understand and agree with God about how He desires for us to live before Him, how He desires for us to obey Him and trust Him in every area of life, that we discern, we approve, and then we agree with God in these matters. And for those who gaze upon God's mercies, for those who present their bodies as living sacrifices, who resist conformity to the world and receive divine transformation in their thinking, God offers this precious gift of His good and acceptable and perfect will, descriptors of that will. This is an immense gift and it is God's doing. And we find both an ultimate purpose in bringing God glory and our ultimate joy in praising God with our entire lives. So perhaps you're here this morning and your presence might be accidental. Maybe you didn't really intend to come here, but you just saw the sign and meandered in here. Or you consider yourself a newcomer who's sort of checking things out. Let me encourage you to deeply consider this idea of worship. Without a doubt, you are worshiping something. And as we mentioned earlier, ask yourself, what is your life centered on? What's your compass? What's that thing that gives everything else meaning? What gives you identity and the thought of losing that thing makes you come pretty close to want to stop living altogether? Is it a certain relationship? Spouse? Spouse you once had? a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend? Is it money? Is it just the idea of the prestige and the power and that social class that you'd love to be in? Is it all the stuff that money can buy? Has it just gripped your heart? If you're honest with yourself, are you, are you being more sculpted and shaped by that? What about a career? It could be even some sort of addiction or drugs that seems to just encapsulate your life and define you and imprison you. But at the end of the day, it is only in a relationship with Jesus Christ that we can be eternally forgiven for when we fall short and we do all of us of His righteous standards. And it is only in a relationship with Jesus Christ that you can know infinite joy and satisfaction as you offer yourself wholly unto Him. And for those of us who may be more regular faces here, 
others in the room. Perhaps you find yourself discouraged at the start of a new year. Maybe your resolutions from last year sort of tanked. Maybe you did pretty awful at them. And maybe 2014 was just an overall discouraging year, filled with trials, filled with just, just heartache and disobedience in your life. And you, you love God, but you're just struggling. Your heart is just in angst. Well, be encouraged this morning. Because when the Son of God desired to teach us a thing or two and to give us a lasting picture of what true worship really looked like, he went into a forbidden land called Samaria. He found a notoriously immoral woman, and he offered her living water so she might become one of the many whom the Father is seeking to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, is there hope for you? It's people like us that the Father is seeking to be worshipers. So be assured that the Father's heart seeks worshipers whose lives are a broken mess. Even for those who have walked with Jesus for many years, and as Isaiah tells us, it is upon those who are humble, contrite in heart, and who tremble at His word. These are the ones upon whom the Lord promises to look. So will we be as a church marked by our constancy of gazing upon the mercies of God? Will the mercies of God pervade our conversations, not only on Sundays, but throughout the week? Will the mercies of God penetrate our compartmentalized, most private sins? Will we agree with God that it only makes sense for us who have been rescued from sin's damning power to present our entire selves wholly before God? Is that too much to ask? Will we actively resist the conforming pull of a godless world? And will we actively place ourselves, actively, in the way of God's transforming grace? So we might, with renewed minds, live out the will of God in this church and before an onlooking world. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, it is for your glory that we exclaim, thank you. Lord, thank you that you have saved us. Father, we, we just, we know at the onset of this year, we want to render our lives and whole life service to you. We want renewed minds, Lord, but, but help our unbelief when we start to feel that pull and that sculpting and that shaping effect of the world's values upon us that just wants to leave you out of everything. Father, I pray for whatever heart is here, whether a seven-year-old or a 70-year-old, everybody between, I pray that we would render our lives afresh to you. We would stop seeking identity in all the false worship that we have spent far too many days and years rendering worship to. Father, I pray that the mercies of God would just just take over our thinking. 
not even for those who tend to toe the line here and tend to love to keep rules and, and that even, even the mercies of God would be sweet to them, that they wouldn't just go through the motions, but that their entire heart would be surrendered before the Lord. Lord, we recognize before you our only hope is to behold our God, to behold our God and all He has accomplished for us in Christ for our good and your glory. This is what we need this morning, and we, in faith, believe that you will work it in us for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me, and just for a few moments before we leave, let's...